The celebration of Christmas is the celebration of the presence of Christ in the church. And the season of Epiphany is the celebration of how that presence is made manifest to the world. In my sermon this morning, I'm going to do a little definition stuff about Epiphany, to say some things to you about the origin of the, of the celebration or its history, and then to speak to you about some of the themes of Epiphany, and finally to say how we understand Mark's version of the baptism of Jesus, which is different in some ways from Matthew and Luke and John. Jesus' baptism is one of the most widely attested historical events in the New Testament, and the fact of his baptism is beyond dispute. I thought I'd Google Epiphany this week, And here's what I got. A Christian festival observed on January the 6th commemorating the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles in the persons of the Magi. Two, an appearance or manifestation especially of a deity. Three, a sudden intuitive perception of or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something usually initiated by some simple, homely, or commonplace occurrence or experience. This was a good definition. I'm glad that I did this because I was getting tired of people coming into my office and saying to me that they'd had an epiphany. You know, I thought, oh, not you too. (laughs) Good. And here's what it may mean. An intuitive perception of or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something. It certainly is an affirmation that you're going to have more than one of these in your lifetime. And we as Christian people believe that in big and small ways it has deep personal, spiritual, mental, and emotional significance. And so helping to appropriate and understand the Feast of the Epiphany may have something to do with understanding that that's a possibility for us too, to experience a manifestation of God. The Eastern Church refers to this as a theophany as opposed to an epiphany. This is the theophany, it is the manifestation of God. Greek terms. Epiphany is a Greek term, which means manifestation. The Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January is understood uh, differently in Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. What I mean by that is what is emphasized and where, if you will, the starting point is now for Christian people after the birth of the Savior. On January 6th, or or in some places January 19th in the Eastern Church, the gospel that is read most of the time is the baptism of Christ, what we read today. And therefore, they begin 
their reflection upon the mighty works of Jesus Christ with the inauguration of his public ministry. Western Christians on Epiphany read the gospel about the visit to the Christ child by the three magi. And the purpose in the West for doing that is to say, before we get to his public ministry today, the Sunday after Epiphany, we want to talk about, theologically, the significance of his birth And the visit by the three magi is the affirmation that his birth has universal significance because in the biblical story, the three magi are are people from all the corners of the known world who come there to pay homage now to the baby Jesus. And so we say this manifestation has universal significance for the world and for human history. And now, by extension, as we move to the Sunday where we celebrate the baptism of Christ, we say this universal significance is not just about Jesus, but it's about the church and it's about you and me because God wants us to be the instruments of making manifest God in the world through Jesus so that we have a role to play. And therefore, by extension, every time we read about the baptism of Jesus, we think about our own baptism. And so in a little while, we're going to renew our own baptismal promises. One of the most significant things in the liturgical renewal of the Western churches in the last now over 40 years has been the recovery to use the 1995 or maybe 2995 term, uh, a baptismal ecclesiology. And what that means is an understanding of the church that centers itself and focuses itself on baptism. And in the renewed liturgies of all of the Anglican churches worldwide who renewed their liturgies about 40 years ago or into the last 25 years, What has been included is something that was not in the original prayer books, and that is a baptismal covenant. Some of the stodgy conservatives believe that what in the world are we thinking that we can have a covenant with God for in the first place? God is God. Who are we to say, okay, we choose maybe to live up to the bargain or not? Well, you know what? The historical evidence and the evidence of the pastoral experience of the church is we do that anyway. It's like sports talk radio. It is what it is. So beginning to say there is some element of reciprocity here, God's act and our response, and if we speak about it in affirmative terms, we don't want to focus only on our disobedience, and our lack of observing the covenant, but the idea that it affirms the fact that you and I have a role to play and God wants us to be in relationship. And again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see God seeking and finding us both personally and corporately and saying He wishes to be in relationship with us. And here's how we respond to the divine initiative. So there are privileges, but also responsibilities that attach to this faithfulness. 
And that is what the baptismal covenant affirms in our common life together. So every year on the baptism of Christ, on Easter, on Pentecost, and on the Sunday closest to All Saints Day, those become the default days where the church baptizes and where it has the opportunity, if it doesn't have pastorally anybody to baptize, the community, the people of God, reaffirm their baptismal vows. So this Sunday is one of the Sundays where we think and reflect on the power of baptism moving in the church's life. We move from the idea of the manifestation to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and his baptism. I should mention to you that for the New Testament church, I expect that his baptism by John the Baptist in some circles was an embarrassment. Because we always want to think about Jesus' ministry, or many people do, in this highly uh, idealized sense of it being so unique that it emerges out of nothing and takes its own shape. But I have always believed that Jesus had to have made sense in his own milieu. He had to have been understood by people and not so mysterious, so obscure, so above everything that he was not in some way rooted and grounded in the thought world of his own day. And his baptism by John the Baptist is an affirmation of that reality. He says in Matthew's gospel, of course, what John the Baptist says, why are you coming to be baptized? He said, I'm coming to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That's an example, a biblical scholar would say, of the later church retrojecting back into the words of Jesus an excuse for why he got baptized. When in fact he may have been compelled by the message of John the Baptist and that John the Baptist was on the same family tree as he was with regard to the preaching of the kingdom of God and God's purposes for the world. But what's going to happen? Jesus is going to get baptized and immediately his ministry will take a left turn from John the Baptist. And he will not be a cutout of John the Baptist saying and doing the same things. He's going to move his emphasis from repentance to the kingdom and to the reality that God unconditionally accepts, forgives, and loves us and that the message that he wishes to convey is the message that he now presents in a unique way, but is connected to the message of his people, which is that God's invitation to come within his saving embrace is to be extended to everyone, not just a select few. And that you and I are to be instruments of this inclusive process of drawing in. So it always reminds us of the need to be hospitable and generous. I mentioned to you usually during Lent or Holy Week uh, a person, a very interesting figure who lived in the first 400 years of Christianity. Her name was Egeria. And she was a pilgrim. 
They used to always write about her as a nun or a member of a religious community, and she very well may have been. And she lived either in Spain or in Gaul, you know, France. And she became a pilgrim and was on her way to Jerusalem. And she kept a diary. The copy that I have is from my seminary days, and it's called Egeria's Travels. And the reason it's important historically is that she describes what Christian communities were doing on her journey. And most importantly, she described what the Christian church was doing in Jerusalem. And she talks in 360 AD about Epiphany and about going to Jerusalem and the celebration on on the, the, the day of Epiphany of the manifestation of Christ to the world and of the celebration of Jesus' baptism. And she writes and records uh, about its significance. Now, we know about this celebration earlier than that because in the 200s, there's beginning to be some information about a full-blown epiphany liturgy in the various churches. What does that mean? The readings, the prayer that the priest says at the beginning of the Mass, certain other, the prefaces, all of the things that are part of the technical aspect of the liturgy of a feast day. So we know that this idea of manifestation is something that is important and how it connects directly because there's just always a few days between the manifestation and the baptism of Christ and the beginning and the inauguration of his public ministry. I want you to think of your own baptism as the inauguration of your public ministry. And even though we believe with strong tradition support that it is right and proper to baptize infants, we can say this about them, that today their public ministry is inaugurated when they are baptized And it is fulfilled through the faithfulness of the parents, which is the reason we baptize infants, for one thing, pastorally, but also because they now are able to be partakers of the promises of God in the church's sacramental life. So we have always said yes to that and believe that there was biblical warrant to do this when it tells us in the New Testament that Paul and the other apostles baptized households. And we are assuming that there are at least one or two of these households that had infants and young children in them. So we go to Mark, the earliest gospel. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the uh, gospels that use many of the same sources, tell the stories in a similar way. And John's gospel poodles along on its own from a different tradition, although they all talk about the baptism of Christ. Mark is the first and earliest gospel. And he speaks in this story of the baptism of Christ somewhat differently than Matthew and Luke. And here's what it is. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He comes out of the water in the River Jordan and a dove lands on him And a voice from heaven is heard. But in Mark's gospel, the only person who hears the voice 
is Jesus. In Matthew and Luke, everybody hears the voice. Everybody sees the dove. But in Mark, it's Jesus. Well, what in the world is Mark driving at? He's driving at the understanding of this vocational moment for Jesus to be a way that internally he began to understand his vocation in depth. And you can draw a straight line from that to your own interior processes whereby you listen for the still small voice that you know is not your own and you begin to receive the affirmation of the presence within you even in a very, as it says in these definitions, homely fashion an ordinary and commonplace fashion of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And so too was that so for the Savior. And the early Christian community out of which Mark's gospel emerged was at pains to affirm and to strengthen those interior processes that are necessary for a healthy and mature spiritual life and for a deep and full understanding of the power and importance of baptism. Because clearly, Jesus will take at his own baptism a different direction than John the Baptist and his perception and understanding of what happened to him is the reason for that. So you and I always have the opportunity to do uh, an interior reflection upon that. This may not seem to be related to this, but let me just remind you of something. A lot of the studies today on the brain tell us that our emotional processes and our thinking processes are simultaneous. There isn't thinking and feeling. It's one. So we have in this regard almost a liquid nervous system. This is particularly important because, you know, being a baby boomer, we went through this period of everybody being upset because you were too much of a thinker and in your head. And everybody went off on that and said, oh, no, you've got to really get in touch with your feelings. You know what? They happen at the same time. They happen at the same time. Why is that important? Because we cannot forsake or separate those things. And so the ancient Hebrew worldview, out of which the Christian worldview emerges as it begins to move together with the Greek worldview, said, you know what? Our thinking and our feeling are very important and the seat of the intellect and of our spiritual life is the human heart. So this is not merely sentimentality. It is an understanding of how we always need to have those processes working in some way and moving forward together. So this moment for Jesus was something that was emotional and intellectual. It was one thing. And in his thought world, he would have said what becomes changed and what becomes strengthened and what becomes enthused and infused with God's grace is my heart, my disposition, my sentiments, my outlook. 
So this week, think a little bit about your many vocations. And know that this Sunday is a time to remind us about thinking about them. And to see whether or not we've had any recent epiphanies, more than just, you know, now why Rachel snubbed you at the coffee roasting company. (laughs) You know... That's where we mostly uh, locate epiphanies, I'm sorry to say. But think about, you know, who you are, where you are, what you ought to be doing and so on, and what you can affirm and what uh, directions you can take. And give thanks for the example of the Savior. Every time we read about Jesus' baptism, it reminds us about our own. That's why we do it. And by extension, if we believe Jesus to be the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development... His baptism and the fact of it has deep influence on our spiritual nurture and development. So give thanks for that. And as always, give thanks for God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. Amen.